Our Father in heaven, we do um, thank you for all your kindnesses. Lord, we're aware that the fact that we even exist is a gift from you. And that daily the provisions that we have are from you. And even the difficulties are a grace from you that you use to train us and grow us and strengthen us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you have for us as we often fail to meet the mark, to live up to your standard. But in your grace, you've provided life through your son. Lord, we pray, uh, we desire to sit at your feet this morning and hear what you have to say about how you uh, desire to care for us as your children and how you will strengthen us and guide us. Lord, we particularly like to pray for Terry in Dubai and Keith as uh, he ministers in Georgia. Lord, I pray that you would use them both to encourage and strengthen the believers that they're ministering to uh, these days, uh, today, and also that they would be an encouragement to Terry and to Keith that they also would grow as they were mutually encouraged. Lord, we uh, again remember the Steinmans and the Heralds and other families that have lost loved ones. Lord, we know that there's a great grief in there, but we thank you that you have, in your grace, you're able to strengthen us in that grief. Lord, we rejoice with Hannah and Drew with the arrival of their new baby. Thank you that uh, Hannah and the baby both are doing well. Lord, we pray for them for uh, strength with their fourth little one and also as they and the family uh, just deal with just the work and effort of a growing family and uh, medical needs of some of the other children that, that are pretty intense, that it just takes a lot of effort. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you can provide them strength and grace in that. Lord, again, we commit this morning to you and pray that it would be a glory to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It can be fun watching people uh, watch sports. I'm not a particularly big sports fan, but I like watching people watch sports. Like I like watching my sons watch sports. You can imagine a Dallas Cowboys Green Bay Packers football game. There's three seconds to go, and the Packers have possession of the ball, and they're three points ahead. It looks like it's a done deal. All the Packers have to do is just not mess up. Well, they mess up. The last play, they fumble the ball. Dallas recovers, runs back, touchdown. Dallas wins. And suddenly, 40,000 people instantly are going, Yeah! And 40,000 people are going, oh! And what's really weird is you can ask one of those guys that are going, yeah! And one of the guys is going, oh! And you ask them, why are you happy? Why are you sad? And what will they say? They will give you exactly the same answer. Because the Packers fumbled and Dallas won. Because Packers fumbled and Dallas won. So what's the difference? The two people saw exactly the same thing. So why are their emotional uh, responses so different? Why is one happy and one sad? Well, the answer, of course, is 
What they're actually reacting to is what they think about what they saw, not what they saw itself. They're reacting to whether they think what just happened is good or bad and whether they think it's something that they either want or they don't want. That's what they're actually responding to. Now, God has a lot to say about emotions in the Scripture. Now, He's the one who made us emotional beings, and in fact, He is emotional. The Scriptures record that He has compassion, He can have anger, uh, see frustration at times in Jesus. And so emotions were His idea, and we have emotions. We're supposed to have emotions. We're supposed to have joy in Him and enjoy peace, love and joy, peace and patience. So emotions were his idea. Now, in his word, in the Bible, he helps us understand what emotions are, where they come from, and the effect they can have on us, and how we should deal with them. And that's all through the scripture. And he especially helps us with understanding how it is that our feelings can sometimes go wonky, And how we have a tendency to let our wonky feelings lead us into making bad decisions. Now, we often think of our emotions or feelings, and I'm going to use the words emotions and feelings synonymously to mean the same thing. By the way, here's an exercise for you and whoever you're with this afternoon. Come up with a definition for emotions. Uh, It's kind of like defining time. We all have a sense for what they are, but to come up with a definition of them, I don't know of a definition in Scripture. And it's funny to look at the dictionary and see people groping for a way to define what emotions are. But we're talking about uh, some kind of feeling that's more than simply a cognitive awareness of 2 plus 2 is 4, that we have some kind of feeling in response to things uh, that may even be accompanied by physical things like laughter or crying or rapid heart rate or things like that. In fact, I'll interrupt for a moment to say after I got up and did the first introduction this morning, I sat down and my wife asked me if I was okay. And I said, do I not sound okay? And she said, you sound like you're about to hyperventilate. So anyway, while we were singing, I was saying, Lord, help me calm down. Well, anyway, we often think of our emotions or our feelings as something that just happened to us. It's like getting rained on or stepping on a nail. It can seem like something that we don't have any control over. You know, some situation comes up in our life or we think about something that's happened or that might happen in the future. And we have feelings about it. We might feel happy or excited or we might feel mad or sad or disappointed. We might feel proud or we might feel ashamed. I can still think of things that I did when I was a teenager and my face will flush. Do you have that? We might feel hopeful or hopeless. We might feel confident or we might feel scared and worried. The list goes on and on. But the thing is, if we're asked, why do you feel that way? Most likely the way we'll answer is we'll name the situation that we're responding to 
But we don't ask ourselves the more important question is, why am I responding to that situation that way? Think about our two friends at the football game. One's happy, one's sad. Did those feelings just happen to them spontaneously out of nowhere? Now think about it. You've watched football games. You look at the guy that's so happy, instantly happy about the Cowboys win. He's wearing a Cowboys jersey and his face is painted gray and blue. And you look at the Packers fan who's sad and he's wearing a Packers jersey and his face is painted yellow and green. So what does that tell us? Well, what it tells us is that their emotional reactions may have occurred instantaneously and feel spontaneous. But the reason they responded the way they did is because they've been thinking a certain way for a long time. And they have developed strong opinions about their teams and what they think is good and what they think is bad and what they want to happen and what they don't want to happen. So when there's a sudden reversal at the last minute of the, of the game, their, quote, sudden emotional response isn't actually all that sudden or spontaneous, is it? It's actually the result of the way they've been thinking for a long time. Now, throughout the Bible, God teaches us what is actually good and what's not good. And that's fair enough, because after all, he's the creator. And so he's the only one who actually knows how things work and what's right or wrong. And not only that, because he made everything, it's legitimate that he's the authority and he's the one who gets to decide. Uh, That's fair enough. That's the whole point of the first couple of pages of the Bible in Genesis. Um, In chapter 1 of Genesis, we're told that God created the world and everything in it. And as it's describing the creation, we're told six times that God saw what he created and he said, that's good. Then he created man and woman and he blessed them. He gave them everything they needed. And then he says a seventh time, It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's turn to the first couple of pages of your Bible there. We're going to go to chapter 2. The story continues in chapter 2 where we're given another account of God creating man and woman. And it's not because the author lost his place. It's just because that's how Hebrew writers do. They'll, they'll tell part of the story and then they'll backtrack and pick up some detail and they'll pick up the story then and they'll tell it again and give some more details and more information. And that's what happens here. The story continues in chapter 2 where we're told again that God made man and woman. But this time we're given more details about where they lived and what God provided them with and the instructions he gave them. And part of what he told them, we see in verses 16 and 17, it said, The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you can eat freely, but from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, don't eat from that. For in the day that you eat from it, you'll surely die. 
Well, you probably know what happens next. Eve, in fact, does eat some of the fruit that God had told him not to eat. And Adam eats some of it, too. And then we're told the terrible consequences of what happened. But in the account that God gives us, he doesn't just simply tell us Adam and Eve disobeyed. And so I kicked him out of the garden. He tells the story of how it happened because he wants us to see what in the world was going on in Eve's mind. How did that happen? Um, Just a side note in your Bible reading, anytime you start seeing people talking in dialogue, it's almost always because God is wanting us to walk along with these people and see what they were thinking and how they were interacting with God and His revelation. So that, painfully but helpfully, we're looking in a mirror to see when we see ourselves. So, what we see is, in Genesis 3, that the serpent, and that's Satan or the devil, that he had come to Eve asking questions about what God had said. And you know... Uh, she responds and gives a pretty, pretty good answer. But then Satan just flat out lies to Eve and told her that what God said was not true. And he also told her, uh, he told her, no, you're not going to die if you eat that tree. And furthermore, he told her that God was being stingy and holding out on her. That he didn't want her to have something that was actually really good and she would like it and benefit from it. And now what happens next is really critical to understand. Let's skip down to chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. It's in here for a reason. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Don't miss the the obvious here. Satan did not force Eve to eat this fruit. He did not shove her down in the ground and jam this thing in her mouth. In fact... I'm going to make a bold statement and say that I think I can make it the case from the Scripture that no one can make you sin. But anyway, at least that's not what happened here. She chose to eat that. And why? Because she saw it as something good to eat. But was it? Read carefully there. When it says she saw that it was good to eat... That's not saying it was good to eat. That's just how she saw it. That's That was her point of view. That's how she viewed it. Was it good to eat? No. God had said, it'll kill you. But she saw it as that because she was believing a lie. And look what she did. She's looking at that tree and she's thinking about it. But how is she thinking about it? Is she thinking about it according to what God had said about it? Or is she thinking about it according to a lie? And she's evaluating whether it's good or bad based on a lie. 
And based on that lie, she sees it as something good. And the more she thinks about it, the more she starts to desire it. She has this emotional pull. Man, that looks good. And she takes and eats. Just about every event in the Bible when people sin, they go through this. And you and I, in our life, every time we sin, this is what we do. It really struck me one time when I was studying this, how important God thinks this is. This edition of, this particular edition of the Bible that I have is 114 pages long, and this is on page 2. This is pretty important. So... She follows this lie and then she gets to experience a new emotion. And that shame. Feeling that shame. This whole thing about nakedness in Hebrew, both in the culture and the language, that nakedness is, among other things, a reference to shame. And so they felt this shame, even though later they're going to try to make excuses to God about why they did what they did. They still, in some sense, understood that they did wrong, and so they're feeling shame. Now, we can laugh about our two football friends, our two football fan friends, for having different points of view. One of them has the point of view that the Cowboy victory was a good thing, and he was happy. And the other sees the Cowboy victory is a bad thing, and he was sad. And we know that's just because they have different loyalties, right? One of them has a loyalty to the Cowboys, and one of them has a loyalty to the Packers. And we can just laugh about that. It's just a game. It's a sport. It's just funny. But it's not a laughing matter if our point of view is different from God's. When he sees certain things as good and bad, and we see them differently. Calling something that God has said is bad, and we call it good, the way Eve did. Or, and there's plenty of examples in Scripture, things that God says are good, and we think are bad, we don't like it. That that's a serious thing. Here, loyalties are a matter of life and death. Are we loyal to God who's our creator and the just and rightful ruler over his creation? Or are we loyal to Satan's lies and the lies of the world and the culture around us and, most importantly, loyalty to my own opinion of what's right or wrong? I'll decide. I mean, we're all Americans, right? We get to make our own decisions. As we go through life... All of our emotional responses to things are going to grow out of our point of view of whether we think something is good or whether we think something is bad. Whether it's something we want to have or experience or something we don't want to have to experience. And all of um, the feelings that we can have being, uh, if we get something that we think is good, we can feel joyful or happy, content, settled, peaceful. You can think of all kinds of words. Uh, If there's something we think is good but we don't have it we can long for it or hope for it or anticipate it hope we might get it desire it 
be excited. On the other hand, if something bad happens that we think is bad happens in our life, we can be sorrowful, sad, disappointed, depressed, even resentful or angry if we feel like it's unjust. I should have that. Somebody's cheating me. If a particular thing that we think is bad and hasn't happened, I'm going to raise my hand here. I struggle here. If something I think is bad and it hadn't even happened, but I think it might, feel anxious, worried, scared. I struggle there a lot. When we have these emotional responses to situations, what the Scripture is going to challenge us with is the first thing we've got to do is ask ourselves, am I viewing this the way God views it? How does God view what I'm looking at? Well, that leads us to another aspect of emotions that God teaches us in His Word. And that is that how we feel about something should not determine how we evaluate things, whether they're good or bad, or how we should, what we should do. In other words, our emotions are not how we decide what's right or wrong, and it's not how we decide what we're going to do. Now, this is true even we have appropriate emotions when we are seeing things the way God sees them and we are having appropriate emotional response to that. Um, that's still good, but that's not what, we're ba- what we should base what we're going to do on or whether or not we think something is true or not. But this is especially true when our feelings are wonky because our thinking is wonky. That's what happened to Eve just now. Her thinking was messed up. She thought the tree was good to eat because she was believing a lie. And because she thought it was good, then she had these feelings of desire. It was pleasurable to her to look at it. And she desired how she thought it was going to make her feel to get it. And so she followed those feelings of desire instead of following the truth that God had told her. Um, Many years ago, it was like decades ago, this is even before Pastor Terry was here, there was a young couple that came to the church for just a short time. Um, And she had been, they were living together, but they weren't married. She had been married and divorced twice. He had been married and divorced three times, and I think they were just in their 30s. Well, they came and... um, they were talking about getting married, uh, asking us about marrying them. And I, I don't know that either one, certainly he was a believer. But I, I remember sitting in a meeting with him and he said to me, he just looked me right in the eye and he said, I know Jesus in the Bible says that we shouldn't be living together since we're not married. But I know it's right because it makes me feel so good. Now, I wasn't surprised that he thought that because a lot of us have that kind of thinking. What amazed me is he didn't know better than to admit it to me sitting in the office. Most of us know better not to say that, even if in fact we tend to do that, don't we? I do. It's just more obvious sometimes when you see a real obvious case, it can make it easier to see maybe more subtle cases in my own heart. Um, But besides not using how we feel to decide what's good or bad, 
It's also not how we want to decide what we're going to do. Um, in the very next chapter of Genesis, in chapter 4, we're just going to look briefly here. It's not as clear here as it's going to be. We're going to jump to Jonah in a moment. Um, but you recall in chapter 4, Adam and Eve, two of their sons, their names are Cain and Abel, and they each offer a sacrifice to God. And God um, looks favorably upon Abel and the sacrifice he offered. But on Cain, uh, not so much. He did not find Cain or his sacrifice acceptable. Now, sometimes people will get all wrapped around the axle about exactly what they did that was or was not acceptable. But it doesn't matter because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story, God is the one who gets to decide what's acceptable about their attitude and what they offered both. But what we want to do is is skip down in chapter 4 to the second half of verse 5. It tells us that uh, God did not have regard for Cain and his offering. In other words, he did not find Cain, his attitude and what he offered is acceptable. So, Cain became very angry... In his, my Bible says countenance fell. The Hebrew says his face fell. You know, why the long face? Why the hangdog look? And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Now, how would most of us answer? Well, because you accepted my brother and not me. Because you dissed me and I don't like it. But God's asking a more important question than that. And again, it's not as obvious here as it will be in Jonah. But the point is, uh, God continues then, he says, if you do well, will not, there's no telling what your translation says because the Hebrew is vague, will you not be lifted up? But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door and his desire is for you, you must master it. Jesus, uh, God is pointing out to Cain that in his anger, because of his anger, there's a high probability that that's going to steer him to sin even more rather than do what God has just called him to do, and that is to repent. God has offered Cain an opportunity to turn back to him and do the right thing and trust him and say, Lord God, you're, you're God. You tell me what's wrong. Let me make uh, do what's right. Um, well, you know what happened is that he, in fact, murders his brother and makes the situation worse. Um, let's turn to Jonah because the, a similar kind of thing happens, but it's a lot more clear. Jonah chapter 4. And... Jonah's a little book. In my Bible, it's only one and a half pages. So don't be embarrassed to use your table of contents to find it. I actually, as you're turning there, actually, I'm having trouble finding it. I've got a lot of Bibles at home, and I have Bibles with the books of the Bible are in four different orders. If you're aware, not all Bibles have the books in the same order, and sometimes I don't remember in the particular book I'm in which Bible, the Bible I'm in, which order the books are in in that one. 
So what we see in Jonah is, you know, the, most of you are going to be familiar with the story, story that Jonah was a prophet, that God had told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of an enemy country, and proclaim God's judgment against them. And Jonah ran the other way. He did not want to do it. God did some miraculous things to more or less force Jonah's hand and then told him a second time to go. And so Jonah went to this, the capital city of this enemy country and proclaimed God's judgment. And then what happened? Did God's judgment come upon those people? No, they repented and God did not send judgment on them. So where we're at is kind of from Jonah's point of view, it's kind of a last-minute fumble, and the game didn't end the way Jonah wanted it to. And so we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. It greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He saw this as something bad. He saw it as something bad that the Ninevites repented and were spared judgment. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, wasn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Wow. Jonah said a lot more than he realized, didn't he? He sees God's compassion and forbearance as a bad thing. This happens a lot in the Bible. People start running their mouth and they basically hang themselves with their own words. Years ago, um, I had a customer who was a, an attorney and he mainly did criminal defense law. And he was telling us one time when he was in, in the store, in the business, he said, he said, man, my clients, of course, they're all innocent. He said, uh, he said, my clients have the right, but not the ability to remain silent. Hence Jonah. So, the Lord says, Do you have good reason to be angry? Now again, what we want to do is we want to just name the situation they were angry at. This enemy nation that has been so hard on Israel, they didn't get destroyed. But that's not what God is asking him. So Jonah went out from the city east of it and they made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Well, I guess made him comfortable. But God appointed a worm when dawn came, and next day it attacked the plant and it withered. So when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. So God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant 
for which you didn't work and you didn't cause to grow. It just came up overnight and perished overnight. And really what's in here is saying, you like it because it just made you feel good. It made you comfortable. That's actually what you care about. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left as well as many animals? I'd focus on the, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? God is really bringing Jonah down, not just the compassion, that is an important part, but the really important part God is focusing on is, Jonah, are you going to let me decide what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong? And I see compassion on these wicked people as something good. And you see it as something bad. And that's what God is calling Jonah to. And throughout Scripture, as we think about our emotional responses to situations, God is always going to be doing that. He's going to be calling us back to not just the situation, but are we seeing that situation the way God is? And ultimately, are we willing to let God tell us how to see that situation? When maybe every fiber in our being is wanting to believe Satan's lies and the world's lies and it just feels like that's not right. Are we going to let God tell us what's good and what's bad? You know, there are all kinds of emotional responses that we have in all kinds of different situations. Uh, you may have figured out that the outline that's in your bulletin that I put in there is not as, um, it appears more linear than this message really is. There's just kind of some summary things in there. But I have down there a brief sampler from Scripture. I'm just going to mention some of the kinds of situations. Don't try to pencil them down. This is just to prick your mind. All of these are the kinds of things that the Lord helps us with. Um, The Lord tells us a lot about when we have joy in good things, when there are things that God says are good, and He gives them to us, and we enjoy them, and they're very pleasant. He has a lot to say about how we could respond to that uh, with gratefulness, being grateful to Him. But He also, He warns us a lot. He warns us that when we get these things that we like, That we need to be careful not to respond by being ungrateful and arrogant and feeling like, well, we accomplished and acquired these things under our own strength. There's In Deuteronomy 8, uh, Paul talks about that to rich people in Philippians. James talks about that. So that comes up a lot. Uh, Also, we're warned that even things that God says are good and He gives us, He warns us about cherishing those things more than we do God who gave them to us, especially if we get to where we trust and cherish them. Uh, He also warns us about good things that he gives us, about being impatient if he doesn't give it to us when we want it, becoming, starting to grumble about it, And that's a lot of what happens in Exodus. 
uh, or trying sinful means to obtain it. Say, well, I know it's a good thing because it says in the Bible it's good and God wants us to have it, but he hasn't given it to me yet. So that justifies whatever I have to do to try to get it now instead of waiting for it. That's actually the main thing that's happening with Jesus in the wilderness when the Satan, when Satan is tempting him. He tempts him three different ways, and all three times that Jesus responds, he's quoting from the period of the Exodus when Israel was in the wilderness, and they were having to wait for the blessings God was promising them. All three of Jesus' quotations are from that, and God is telling Satan, My Father's going to give me far more than what you're offering. But I'm going to wait for him to give it to me on his time. And I'm not going to step out from under his guidance and do sinful things to try to get them now. Oh, we can so easily try to justify that. Um, We're more used to thinking about the warnings in the scripture about loving and desiring things that God has said are bad. That's what Eve did. But also, he tells us a lot about how to think about painful emotions uh, that can be painful. He talks a lot about um, legitimate concerns regarding people's welfare, and yet without becoming anxious about it and worrying. Um, He helps us with the painful emotions of legitimately difficult situations like grief and death, the hardship and illness. The Lord knows about pain. He knows about pain and grief. And fortunately, he never tries to pretend like, oh, well, if you just trust me, everything will be roses. No, he knows it's hard, but he, he can guide us through that. He also can help us think through painful emotions in response to when he disciplines us. He acknowledges in Hebrews 12, you know, it can be... It's pretty uncomfortable when God is disciplining us. But how can we think about that and respond? And how does it respond? Uh, how do we think about painful emotions from resulting when we don't like what God is doing? And I'll confess there's times when, like a lot of the prophets and a lot of the disciples, when Jesus, God or Jesus would tell them what he's going to do, and they go, do what? It's a surprise. And the Lord knows we're surprised, but he'll help guide us through that. Well, for those of you that are involved in the counseling training, you'll probably recognize that most of that counseling training, this is what it's about. It's helping people think well as they go through life. And you can think of a thousand different permutations, but it all comes down to the same thing. Ultimately, are we going to trust God when he tells us how to think about and deal with these situations? Now, in your outline, I have a deal there that says obstacles to dealing appropriately with emotions. This doesn't come directly from a passage like I can't say in Hezekiah chapter four, it lists these four things. But um, so just. Take these and roll them around the back of your mind. I think all of these are present all through Scripture. 
These are things that are obstacles to us dealing well with our emotions. And I'm going to list four things. And the first one I'm going to put is the deceitfulness of our emotions. Let's turn to Ephesians 2. It's a very, I mean, there are so many passages that tell this. I, I had a terrible time deciding which one to use this morning. It's just from, well, it starts in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to see it again a little later. The fact that our emotions are so deceitful to us and and can mislead us. In Ephesians 2, I'm going to read the first three verses here where he's describing how an unbeliever thinks about the world. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It's a lot of words. He's talking about Satan. He's saying, as unbelievers, you guys were following the ways of Satan in the world, just like Eve did in the garden. Among them, we too all formerly, he says, me too, all of us apostles, all of us as unbelievers, we lived in the lusts of our flesh. Uh, that lust, when you look in the New Testament, any place, just about any place you see concern or lust, it's the same Greek word. It's a very generic word. It's just desiring things. Uh, and it's just the context that tells you whether it's desiring bad things or desiring good things or how strongly you desire them. But here it's talking about the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, we were indulging all these feelings and desires that we have, but they've all been corrupted by Satan. He brings it up again in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Again, he's going to refer to the same thing. He says, In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the, my Bible says, lusts of deceit. Just It'd be better grammar, actually, to say deceitful desires, deceitful lusts. That lust of deceit, that reminds me of like filthy lucre out of King James. Filthy lucre. It sounds like a bad guy in a movie, doesn't it? Um, It's a little bit misleading. Deceitful lust. The point he's making is that our emotions and our desires can be very misleading and deceive us, just like they did Eve. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then what he goes on to say is that the Holy Spirit taking God's word can begin to change the way we think. And as that happens, then also our desires will change. That's how that happens. So, one of the things that is an obstacle to dealing with our emotions is how easily we're deceived by them. And we need God's Word to help us wade through it. And a pitch for Christian brothers and sisters, we often need to help each other. I might look at a brother, I might look at my brother David here and see something in his life, and I think, man, why can't he see that? He's just blind, his thinking's all messed up, and I can try to help him. And he's looking at something in my life that I can't see, and I'm picking on him because we're both named David. 
He might see something in my life that I'm blind to that is pretty obvious to him. And in love, we can help each other with that. A second thing, and this is the one um, I'm going to say, that a lot of the things that we respond to, our feelings and the way we feel about whether something is right or wrong, they don't feel like something that we learned. They feel like something that's just true, like gravity. Like I can't even explain it. Uh, the last verse in the book of Joshua, when you're familiar, the nation of Israel is just for 400 years, they've been continually rebelling against God. And the final <laughs> condemning statement at the end of Joshua is, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Because there's so many things in life when we're deciding what's right or wrong that it's not like we just say, okay, two plus two is four. There are things that they just feel like they're right or wrong and it just should be obvious. Common sense will tell you that. Well, unfortunately, our sense is not common. Um, A third thing is that... uh, an obstacle to dealing appropriately with emotions is that it feels like something we don't have any control over. When it happens, it feels like just spontaneous, automatic from nowhere again. It feels like getting rained on or stepping on a nail. It feels like something we don't have any control over. But the Scripture actually takes quite a different point of view. That's why we read the Scripture that we did from Colossians, where actually Paul is giving a command about setting aside certain things. And a lot of those are emotions. Wrath and anger. There are places where Jesus talks about setting aside anxiety. Now fortunately, God through His Word and the Holy Spirit gives us a lot of help in straightening out our thinking to help us with those emotions. But um, what the Scripture is continually gives instruction, for example, put away all wrath and anger. And uh, my wife has confessed to me, we've been married 41 years now, I think. And uh, one of the big surprises to her after we've been married a while is she thought that I was the calmest, coolest guy she'd ever met. And then she found out, nah. <laughs> I mean, I am one of the most nervous, uptight people, and I have a real anger problem. I have a problem with my anger. Um, I don't often outburst in public, but I'm awfully often angry. And it doesn't feel like something I, I can control. And uh, I have to confess, my dad is probably watching this. He's live-streaming this. And just two or three weeks ago... I was taking him to the doctor and something came up and basically I just blew up and spoke very inappropriately <laughs> to him. And I had to confess that to him. I was way out of line. Uh, it's, it can be hard up here because I had just preached a couple weeks before that. <laughs> and he referred to, he said, I heard a young guy preach a couple of weeks ago and he said which bore immediately on the issue that I had lost my 
I'll say lost my temper. See, I'm, I'm trying to claim it's out of my control. But I have to admit, God says, no, David, it's not. It's not. He can help us with that. The fourth thing, and it's really the biggest issue. The fourth thing is really the biggest issue of obstacles to dealing appropriately with our emotions. And that is simply refusing to trust and submit to God when he tells us how we should think about the world. Let's turn to Matthew 19 and 20. Because we're going to have two, 19 and 20 all goes together. Get the white out, out of your purse and white out that chapter division, chapter 20. That's in a terrible place. It's right in the middle of Jesus' answer to a question. In... um, in Matthew 19, beginning in 16, you're familiar with the story. There's a, there's a rich fellow that comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, um, just keep the commandments. And he says, Which ones? And Jesus quotes some. And the man says, Well, I have been keeping all these, but what am I lacking? Uh, he at least showed some insight in recognizing that he was lacking something. And what Jesus says, okay, if you want to be complete, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So that's actually the issue is follow me. Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow your money? And which does he choose? And Why? But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So what are we saying? He's thinking that eternal life is something valuable. I'd like to have that. I'll ask Jesus. I'll ask this rabbi how to get it. But now what Jesus done is he's thrown down a choice. Well, you got a choice. You can follow me. Or you can follow your money. If you follow me, you have eternal life. If you follow your money, well, what does he do? He grieves, but he still goes away. That's a lot of our emotions, isn't it? We don't want to do what God says. We want to do things that are sinful. And in fact, we go ahead and do them and we, we grieve and we sorrow and we hurt over the consequences, but we're still not ready to turn loose. I think C.S. Lewis once said something that, that fallen people, that it's incredible that their attachments to their idols are so strong that they would rather cling to their idol that is disappointing them and making their life miserable than to turn loose of that and trust God. And that's what happens here. Well, it continues where Peter, we can always count on Peter, we left everything and followed you. What do we get? And Jesus says, well, there's reward. For anything that you've given up in this life for the kingdom, you'll get far more in the future. But, 
He qualifies it. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the last verse of chapter 19 and begin chapter 20. And again, that chapter breaks appalling. Wipe that out. So he tells this parable about the vineyard owner who goes out and hires day labor. Some people early in the morning, later in the morning, middle of the day, afternoon, end of the day. And you're probably familiar with the parable. It comes time to pay these guys off. And at the end of the day, the vineyard owner, he starts paying the guys that have only worked an hour first. And he gives them a full day's pay. But then he gives the same pay to all of them, even the guys that have been there all day. And this is where he goes. Remember, this is Jesus telling a parable about how God works and how the kingdom works and how he distributes his blessing. And Jesus, even in the parable, he preemptively addresses what he knows as people are going to grumble about it, just like Jonah did. And what he says is, um, in verse 13... Jesus answered and said to one of them who was grumbling, Friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. Didn't you agree to work with me for Darius? Daenerys? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what's my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. That verse 15, you can put in every situation in life, especially the ones that you don't like, and I have plenty while I've had words with the Lord and I have to catch myself. I just flat get angry with the Lord. And the Lord asked me this question. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And I have to ask myself, Am I willing to let the Lord decide when He gives me things that I enjoy and when He decides to withhold them? And when is He willing to do likewise with somebody that maybe He's my enemy, I don't like Him, He's an unbeliever, He's a sorry dog. Lord, why are You blessing Him? And the Lord says, that's for me to decide. Are you willing to trust me? Well, what is the solution to all this? Again, in the counseling training, there's a thousand different permutations. Everybody in this room has different detail situations. But the underlying issue is always the same, and it's always the same answer, and that's living the gospel. But what is the gospel? Again, I had trouble deciding what passage to pick to summarize this. And I decided to use Peter because we always use Paul. I always use Paul. So let's use Peter. But Peter, Paul, James, the writer of Hebrews, they all are saying the same thing. And of course they would because they all had the same teacher. So turn to the beginning of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2 or 3, I'm going to read a couple of remarks that Peter makes when he's out preaching the good news. 
And then we're going to look at Second Peter, where Peter writes this in a letter to the churches explaining it. So in Acts 2 and 3, in, in Acts 2, verse 38, this is Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. And he has told them about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins and was resurrected and is now raised and in heaven. And so the people ask him, what do we do? And in verse 38, Peter answers them and he says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then skip down to the verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, how does that register to you? Be saved from this perverse generation. Does that mean that the perverse people of this generation won't persecute me? That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is to save, to be saved from being an active participant and member of this evil generation. Because that's what salvation is. It's not merely a matter of not having to go to hell. Salvation is that God changes us from being rebels that are disobedient to Him, and He changes us into being people who trust Him and love Him and are obedient. And that's what He's talking about being saved from. Um, I often use this analogy. If you have a child that's in jail, you don't just want to get them out of jail. You want them to be saved from a life of crime and to become a good citizen. And this is even more so. Well, in the second sermon, the same thing will happen. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 19, again, Peter's going to say the same thing. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then skip down to verse 26. For you first, he's talking to Jews here, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by... How would you want to fill that in? How do you want God to bless you? Well, it give me hair. <laughs> I mean, I'm being flippant, but be healthy, have prosperity, save my worries, save my marriage, whatever, bless me with whatever. Look what he says. To bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. Do you regard that as a blessing? You may or may not get comfortable things in this life, but is that something you desire for God to bless you with? Now, that can be a painful thing because to be turned away from your sinful ways, you're going to have to be shown what they are and turn loose of them. And that's as hard for me as it is for you. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible apart from God. We'll end in Second Peter where Peter is going to say this same thing in a letter. Again, this will look familiar. Some, some of these uh, paragraphs like this are all so similar that often I have trouble remembering. 
uh, the passage that Carl read from Colossians this morning, I started thinking, where was that? You know, Paul says it so many places. So in Second Peter... I'll just start reading chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, apostle to Jesus Christ. He's just saying, that's who wrote the letter. To those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's writing to believers. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Both the written word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has made these things known to us. And these are true things, not the lies that Satan has told us. Verse 4. For by these... He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that, listen to this, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you even want that? Or do you just want a Lamborghini? (laughs) Or to be famous? Can you imagine? Take on the divine nature to be like Him. Having escaped... The corruption that is in the world by desires and lust. That's back to Genesis chapter 3. Where because of the lies of the world, all our desires are all messed up. But there's an escape from that. Verse 5. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord. So we see the answer to all the various permutations of all the emotional turmoil that we have in life, or even pleasant emotions in the trouble they can cause by leading us to make poor decisions when we're not aligned with what God says. The answer is simply to live the gospel as we tease through all of the details and understand that God's salvation is there to help us and guide us and straighten our thinking out. And the Holy Spirit can do that when we trust Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you are a loving Father. Lord, we thank you for your care for us. That your love for us is such that you would even sacrifice your own son to pay the penalty for our sins. And that your son, in obedience to you and also in love for us, was willing to do it. But in your power and raising him from the dead, you have demonstrated that your power far surpasses that of Satan or any other power or even our sin, that your grace is far more powerful than that. Lord, for any people that are here this morning or 
or listening over the stream, if they have never come to the point of just trusting you for life and trusting that your son did indeed die for their sins and was raised from the dead, and it is through believing in him that you forgive them and you give us all of these precious promises, the precious promise of of having your divine nature again, just like you intended Adam and Eve to be when you made them in your image in the garden, that we can have that. Lord, we thank you that we get a taste of that even in this life as your spirit transforms us here, and we look forward to when that transformation is complete, when we're in heaven with you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again.